grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey guys, how's it going? Happy Monday. Get to start the week all over again with some great guests, great ways to learn things from people. I'm so excited. We've got a great week. I'm excited about our guest tonight. By the way, my name is Charlotte and I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal issue, we can come out and help you. It might take us a while because California is a Huge, huge state, but we will get to you. And if we can't get to you right away, we do have mediums on staff that, that can call you and work with you. All right, so check us out on Facebook. Um, just like you're watching me now, check us out on Facebook and uh, check us out on Twitter. You, you can even find us over at TikTok, California Haunts, all lowercase, Twitter, we're Cal Haunts. Uh, Instagram, I am ghost, Ghosty Gal, and I'm all lowercase over there. And you could YouTube, obviously, for the people that are watching from YouTube, and that's at youtube.com forward slash ampersand California Haunts Radio. And, of course, Facebook. There are several iterations of California Haunts on Facebook, plus my personal Facebook page. Which reminds me, if you're watching tonight from Facebook and you like what you see and you haven't done so already, please feel free to follow. And feel, feel free to show me some love and hit me up with some thumbs up and some hearts, right, some likes. I'd appreciate it if you're watching from YouTube tonight and you like what you see. Same thing. Uh, hit, show me some love. Hit me up with some likes. Hit me up with some hearts. And if you haven't done so already, there's a little man in the right-hand corner down here. Not a little man, a little ghost. With a uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on and a magnifying glass, that is our mascot. If you click on him, the little subscribe button will pop up. And you can subscribe if you haven't done so already. We've got more than 400 videos sitting over there, and they're all on varying topics. I am a journalist, and I like to change it up a bit when I do these shows. So uh, I'm sure if, if you get over there and peruse the topics, you'll see that there's something for everybody. You'll probably find something you like. Okay. <sighs> that was a lot to say. My guest tonight, Pat Spain, has been on, and, I, and he can correct me, has been on a few TV shows. And I think you're going to recognize who he is when he starts talking. That's why I'm going to let him tell his own story. But I'm fascinated with him because he has done something I always wanted to do with my life, and that's travel around the world, looking at looking into mysteries and looking into exotic animals and things like that. So uh, we're going to hear what he has to say about that. So without further ado, here comes Pat Spain. Hello. Hello, sir. Hey, how's it going? Good. How, how are you? Doing all right. Yeah, thank you. I am honored to have you on my show. I'm very glad to be here. Tell us about you. <laughs> For people so, that don't uh, know about you, you know, my Mr. Name's Pat Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I'm a, I'm a, um, I went to school for marine biology, but I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, I also work in biotech. That's the day job. And then I've hosted a few different um, wildlife adventure series. Um, so a couple one-off shows. And the biggest series that I've had were uh, Beast Hunter on the National Geographic Channel and Legend Hunter on the Travel Channel. And I just have a new uh, six-book series that I've written that just came out uh, this month. 
Fantastic. And what made you want to become a biologist? I have always been just obsessed with animals. Ever since I was a little kid, every animal I could find, I wanted to catch. I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. And I wanted to get people excited about the animals that I loved so much. So I would go around and just, I grew up in upstate New York and anything I could find, I, I, I'd catch and then I'd give these little neighborhood talks about. So I ended up going door to door and knocking on neighbor's door and asking them, hey, do you want to learn about a garter snake? And you kind of get a crowd gathered around you. And I loved doing that. So when I got older, that kind of passion for wildlife education never went away. And when I went to school for marine biology, I was um, TAing a couple labs and I was, uh, you know, sponsoring field trips and teaching a bunch of kids. And when I graduated, I still wanted to do it, but I realized that biologist street performer doesn't really pay. <laughs> there's, there's not much money in that. So I got a job in biotech, which I love, which is also very, very rewarding. And um, my wife encouraged me to, you know, she said, you know, maybe one of the biggest audiences you could reach, this is back in 2002, um, is through TV. She's like, did you ever think about being, a, being on TV doing this stuff? And I was like, ah, I've thought about it, but she's like, well, I just saw an ad for this Animal Planet show that they're looking for hosts. Why don't you audition? So I drove the next day um, out to Ohio. <laughs> which is like a 20 hour drive or so from where I, uh, from where I live. And I'm um, just on a whim, found some people who'd put me up for the night um, and auditioned for this wildlife show. And I ended up getting it. Uh, and I finished second, which is the first loser. And that is uh, that was a reality competition show on animal planet, but I loved it. And I just wanted to keep going with this. So I started filming my own show. Um, you know, got some of my best friends, my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife to film this YouTube series, did that for about six years, got myself really, really in debt, <laughs> but, but loved it. And then, um, got a couple offers to do some shows. So I did a few on BBC, a couple on National Geographic, um, Animal Planet, Sci-Fi, kind of all around. I remember seeing you on TV. <laughs> Thank you. I would watch you. I watch you. <laughs> In fact, when, when you talk about your childhood, I was like that, too. I, in fact, I still have the original wildlife encyclopedias in, in my bedroom back here. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, there's there they are. Yeah, <laughs> and remember those card sets? You could order oh, the cards. Remember all those for cards? Sure, absolutely. I used to have a whole set of those, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think, I think they're still in my parents' basement, actually. <laughs> loved animals. Loved them. So, uh I was, I was looking through your books. Oh, thank you. Your book series. And you have some interesting things there. I mean, obviously Bigfoot. But what about, what got me was, was the sloth. What's up with the sloth? Yeah, yeah. So this was, um, this is down in Brazil. There's uh, what, they, what they call the Mapinguari. And it's a really fascinating story. So uh, I got into cryptozoology as opposed to biology. And I really look at them as one and the same, really. Uh, cryptozoology just brings in a little bit of cultural anthropology, which was my minor in school. So, but, but otherwise, I look at them as the same. So I got into cryptozoology um, just because I, I like the weirder animals. I like the stranger, most bizarre things. And, uh, you know, you start... You get into the ones that are known by science, but maybe we don't know too much about them. You know, the megamouth shark, where we've only found, you know, a few of them. The giant squid, where we didn't see one alive until like 2012 or something. So, um, and then eventually you kind of step over that line and go, well, what about a giant octopus? Oh, I guess that's fine. Well, what about a giant hairy hominid? <laughs> that might be somewhere. So um, I kind of push the door a little bit wider than I think most biologists do. But 
the Mapinguari is this creature down in Brazil where if you talk to people in the cities in Brazil, if they have heard of the Mapinguari, they'll tell you that it's a, a mythical protector of the forest. And they'll say it's this giant, you know, 60 foot creature and it has one eye and it's got a mouth in the middle of its chest. And if you hear its call, you'll drop down dead. And, um, you know, the, it's got backwards feet. It's got all these kind of characteristics that, that, you know, it's this protector of the forest, though. It's kind of an eco warrior is, uh, is what you'll hear. But then when you get into the regions and that, that myth even persists into the smaller cities. So not just like Rio and stuff, but when you get into the smaller cities, even in Amazonia, um, you'll still hear these myths. But then when you go to the regions where this creature is supposedly spotted, you'll get a very, very different story. And the picture that starts to emerge is that of a giant ground sloth, which most biologists will tell you went extinct about 10,000 years ago. Right. Now, some ground sloths did survive, like on the island of Hispaniola, until uh, less than 1,000 years ago. So there is the possibility. It's one of those creatures that we know we know was out there. We have a lot of them. We've got a skeleton of it right in the Harvard Museum that I used to go to all the time in school. Um, and yeah, so, so we know that these were there, and this region has really unique characteristics, and um, the people there have these unique stories about it where they could have potentially created, accidentally created um, the, a, a perfect kind of storm of, situ of scenarios where the creature could have survived to this day. And that is what I believe is down there. And when I went down to investigate, we actually heard one at night. And I've worked with a lot of sloths, um, and I know what their call sounds like. And the closest thing that I could describe this to is a lower-pitched version of a, a sloth mating call. And, oh, man, our guides got freaked out. They had to leave the area. It was like, we shouldn't have been here. We shouldn't. No one would admit that they heard it. It was this whole, like big situation late at night um only the sound guy and i were the ones who were really really adamant that uh that we had heard this and he had all the cool equipment and everything so it was pretty nuts and i really do think that there's a there's a very good chance that there are still um a remnant population of giant ground sloth well there's enough forest for it so i mean you know it's, it's like for sasquatch sure. i mean they can roam wherever they want to roam Here's yeah you go up into northern canada there, there's a lot of forest up there too oh yeah i mean it's just yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, that was my question. You kind of led into my next question about taking film crews with you to look for this stuff. Um, how, how hard it is to, to, retain, I mean, to, to retain film crews with you? I mean, like in this case, you know, some of them got freaked out and took off and you were stuck, you, you were there with the sound guy. So the, the film crew are some of my closest friends. They're awesome. They're just okay. this amazing group of people. And um, I mean, I wouldn't have been there without them. <laughs> these are, these are, uh, the, you know, the the production company is Icon Films. They make uh, River Monsters and um, the stuff with Hazen, Hazen Audell, where he's going through all the remote rainforests and everything. Mm -hmm. Survive the tribe and um, you know, Primal Survivor. Uh, they're just an amazing group. And this was a show that they had gotten um, through National Geographic, and then they were looking for a host. And they had seen my wildlife videos and they were really looking for a biologist for this, but an open-minded biologist. So I got the call from Harry Marshall, the CEO of Icon, and uh, he started talking me through it. And as he's mentioning, I'm like, oh yeah, I love cryptozoology. And I'm telling him what I think. And he goes, well, we have this angle that we want to explore. Have you ever heard of a man named Charles Ford? And I went, oh, that's actually my great uncle. 
And he was like, well, we have to do this show. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't bring them, they brought me. Um, and to do a show with the film crew, I mean, they're, um, like I said, they're, it's a really small crew. There was five of us on all these shoots. And they're, they're all just great people, um, really, really passionate, really excited about it. Um, there are things that they would do that made me nervous. There are a lot of things that I would do that made them nervous, but we really pushed each other um, to make the best series that we could. Is it hard, like, like when you're looking for something that's, I'm gonna say mythical, you know, sure. even though it existed at one point, what is that process like? Like, obviously you, you would go into the little villages and talk to people and ask people about it. But once beyond that, how do you narrow it down for the area that you're going to look? There's a huge amount of research that happens before we ever step foot on a plane. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, phones and internet and we're contacting people for, for months leading up to this. So there's the, um, the associate producer. So on the trip, there'd be the, the producer, the associate producer, sound, camera, and me. <laughs> and the associate producer was in charge of making all of the contacts. So she and I, um, on, on that on the trip down in Brazil, she and I would be contacting, um, like we'd be talking all the time and figuring out, okay, well, here's here's an area that I'd like to explore. Here's a region where some of the sightings have taken place. And then she would find someone down there who could um, just travel around and try to find eyewitnesses for us. So try to find people who have seen it and then try to find uh, biologists who maybe have studied this. And in that particular case, we found Dr. David Oren, who's a, an ornithologist who um, he also believes that this is a giant ground sloth. He believes that he has heard it. He believes that, you know, this is absolutely out there. Um, and then we would find tribes who would allow us to live with them <laughs> and we could go down and live with them and hear their stories hear their firsthand accounts of these creatures um, and then beyond that it's such a massive area it would be well we we didn't go down there with the expectation that we would find it right you know right, in right. in in the short amount of time that you're there there are people who spend their lives you don't you don't actually expect to find it so you want to tell the story in the best way that you can Mm -hmm. So to do that, you would use some of the tools that somebody who would be down there for an extended period of time would be able to use. So it's things like camera traps. Um, now, if I had the chance to go back, I'd use eDNA. Um, it's thermal imaging. It's, uh, you know, setting up, like, tracking different regions. It's looking for tracks on the ground. It's looking for scat. It's, you know, just showing the tools and the methods without actually expecting to find it. And the, the point of the show Beast Hunter wasn't ever to show whether or not the animal is real, mm -hmm. but to tell its story, sure. to tell the story of this and to see why it's important. So why, why should we care about this area and this creature? And um, that was really the goal of the show. The question that comes to mind is you mentioned with the sloth, it's, it, it's feeder backwards. Oh, so yeah, so there's there's a lot of mythical creatures in Brazil actually that have that supposedly have backwards feet. Um, the Curapira is another one, and there's one more that I can't think of on, but I have some photos of some of the statues. And the reason why they say its feet are backward, oh, and there's a lot of Native American um, legends about creatures with backwards feet as huh. well, because what what they're supposed to do is um, it's supposed to lead you in the wrong direction. So if you're oh, okay. in the forest. And yeah, you're following the track the wrong way. That makes perfect sense now. That yeah. makes perfect sense. So how long were you there to look for the sloth? 
Oh, and sorry, just one one other really interesting okay, thing. So with that one, with the backwards feet, um, the interesting sure. thing about ground sloths is that they would have had. I mean, everyone thinks of the crazy sloth claws, you know, the the you know two or three fingered sloths. Right. But they're on their feet. The ground sloths would have had toes that would tuck under their feet like this. So they really could have truly had prints that looked backwards. That makes sense because of that. So. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat, but um, I, we we were down there for about two and a half weeks. Okay, cool. Wow, I, I just admire what you do. I love it. I really do. Thank if you. I could afford to do it, I was in. I wasn't such an old fart now. I'd be out there doing that stuff too. Never too old. Never too old to do it. It's it's amazing, and I had. I had so many friends and uh, you know family members and stuff who would who would say that who would say oh this is this is amazing you must love it I can you know bring bring me with you bring me on one of the trips and then I would show them the places where we were sleeping and eating and going to the bathroom and most of them would be like nah I don't want to go never mind <laughs> my wife um, used to come on a lot of shoots with me and um, her rule was that the bathroom had to have at least two walls <laughs> so like, if the bathroom if there's two walls, I can go. And I was like, well, West Africa's out. Sorry. <laughs> That's... The closest I've come is I was on a Sasquatch hunt once. We had a house uh, that was about 20 miles from Happy Camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we used to go into Happy Camp all the time. And I mentioned, well, my mother had to open her mouth and say, oh, she's a paranormal investigator. And they all went, bing. So off I went. Let's go. Didn't, didn't, didn't see anything, no footprints or anything. But I, I did get to go in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And uh, look for Sasquatch for a couple afternoons. It's kind of fun. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's one of the great things about cryptozoology is even if you don't find anything, it's just amazing to be out there. It's great to be out there. And people who are going on Sasquatch hunts, whether whether you find any evidence or not, you're gonna you're gonna fall in love with the forest. You're gonna fall yeah. in love with being outdoors, and that's great. I apologize because it's, it's it's blinking out here and there. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I hadn't noticed. Yeah, the, yeah. From I'm seeing it from my end in the neighborhood I live in. I'll just let everybody out in the world know. Uh, everybody has Xfinity here. Ah, uh, gotcha. So it's okay. time for them to come home and have dinner. So they're probably online doing their thing. Never ends. Um, tell me about it because one of your books is about Bigfoot too. So let's 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 talk about Bigfoot a little bit. Well, it's it's about um a little Bigfoot. So it's it's Orang Pendek, which is in okay. Sumatra. So okay. Orang. It's a small hairy hominid that's been sighted throughout history in uh, in Sumatra, and and of course we know um, that there was a species of hominid, a species of small hominid that lived there that was um, Homo floresiensis or the Hobbit, and uh, Dr. Mike Morewood is the one who first described the Hobbit, um, and they potentially lived until very very recently. So um, that could attribute could be what a lot of the sightings are attributed to are um, Homo floresiensis. Interesting. And could that could this particular kind be related to the one that they had over in the United States? Because there, there, there was that report of that, I forget what his name was, and it traveled all, all the circuses and fairs and stuff. Oh, so th there's been different accounts throughout, um, yeah, throughout the years of, as you say, like kind of, kind of circus, uh, circus acts and other yeah, things. And yeah. I don't know of any of the smaller Bigfoot. Um, in that ilk that were ever shown to be, you know, anything other than a suit <laughs> kind of thing, or, or, you know, potentially somebody with, um, with physical deformities. Like there was, uh, there was somebody who had that, uh, what's the condition where people get absolutely covered in hair. Right. Right. Um, Joe, the dog face boy. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So there's there's been some of those that were you know passed off as a small Bigfoot and things like that, but this is um, a distinct species. And what's the most likely in my mind after going there? So I went there really thinking that this was a mistaken identity for either an orangutan or a gibbon, mm-hmm. and I left convinced. I left convinced that it either was there very very recently or still is. And I think Lauren Coleman gets it right when he says that there's there's most likely two different species that, that people are describing. There's one that's more similar to humans, more similar to a hominin, and one that's more ape-like, one that's more gibbon-like, probably a nocturnal uh, gibbon species. And I think that he's he's got it right on that assessment. Well, like I said earlier, there's so many places they can hide there. Oh yeah, oh Sumatra. There's there's um you know seventeen thousand islands or something wild, and yeah. uh, most of them uninhabited, or or very sparsely inhabited. And even in Sumatra, um, I mean we were a few days hike from the nearest village, and it was remote. It was very very remote, <laughs> and difficult terrain. I mean I was soaking wet for two weeks. I did not dry out for two weeks. I lost a layer of skin off my entire body. I had the skin rot off my feet. I found leeches everywhere you can imagine. And uh, that's just a couple of weeks. Not my thing. Nope. Not that adventurous. Nope. No, I'm not that adventurous. I'm adventurous, but not like that. And, yeah, and that's exactly what everyone says. They're like, oh, I'd love to be out there. And then I show them some of the behind the scenes pictures. They go, yeah, no, I'm good with that. I'm okay watching it. If there's a Hilton, I'll stay there for the night. Then I'll come out right. with you guys. And then I'll go back to the Hilton. Oh, Hilton. Oh, I could tell you some of the hotels that we stayed at were were much worse than being in the soaking wet jungle. I can imagine. And that's that's a lot of that's in the book, too. So the books are um, they're they're kind of weird because they're uh, I think some people expect it to be uh, just a straight crypto book. And other people expect it to be a straight travel book, and it's not. It's they're all true stories about the adventures that you get into. Like when you're when you're in Sumatra looking for a ring pendek, you're gonna meet some really interesting people and get yourself into some really interesting scenarios and eat some bizarre foods and things like that. So three quarters of the book are travel stories, and then it's got a cryptid angle, and then it's here's my thoughts on this cryptid, and here's what I really found um, with regards to it. The sloth book is excellent. Thank I, you can't, so much. I can't wait to read the rest of them. They're pretty awesome. You know what I was thinking when you were talking about meeting the people eating the food? The first thing that comes to mind, and don't take this the wrong way, Willy Wonka. Oh, yeah. When he was out with the Oompa Loompa. Oh, yeah. The, the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. That's that one of my favorite stuff. movies. Yeah. All that weird stuff that, that the Oompa Loompas were feeding him when he was out in the forest. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, I mean, and I, I won't say no to anything. I don't draw, like, I, I won't eat something that is still currently alive, mm-hmm. and I won't eat primate. Those are my only two lines. <laughs> so can you tell me about the food? Let's talk about that since we brought it sure. up. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, w- I was vegetarian for a very, very, very long time. And uh, my doctor, I started getting sick. I wasn't doing too well with it. My doctor basically joked and said, I'm going to write you a prescription for a chicken sandwich. <laughs> and I started eating meat again. And then I started eating everything. So the weirdest foods that you encounter when you're traveling are fruits and vegetables but no one wants to hear about them. <laughs> but they are they are so strange because you can't describe them. Um, you can't compare them to anything else. They just don't taste like anything that you, that you can imagine. We had this fruit in Sumatra that only grows on this one, on the side of this one mountain. That's the only place in the world where this grows. So unless you're there, 
unless you go to this vendor who's picking them and selling them that morning, you have no chance of ever eating it. And it's wild. It tasted like, you know, this delicious citrus, but it looked like tab, it looked like frog eggs, and it comes in like this little lollipop thing that's naturally occurring. Just mind-blowing it's amazing but the uh, the things that people always want to hear about are the animals and yeah. i've eaten them all <laughs> so in, in sumatra um we we accidentally ate cat which always Aww. makes people very sad i have pet cats it's all right it's yeah but didn't what people know. don't realize too and i know this because i have a i have an australian kelpie oh I've had great and, yeah. I'm, and i'm a member of the things on you know on the, on the groups on facebook and what people don't realize is that the way the kelpie i'm not saying they're treated bad but but the working kelpies are handled a lot different than the the, the domestic kelpie like i have oh sure and people oh, get upset over i'm not going to say you know what goes on but people get upset over the way they're handled sometimes and it's just there's just a big difference between that just like with you the cat over there it wasn't somebody's pet it was just a cat it was a, yeah no i mean cat or whatever that, that you guys ended up eating Cultures are very, very different. And, yeah. you know, I, I have a huge amount of respect for all cultures. And, I mean, pigs, pigs are super smart. They're one of the smartest animals out there. And we eat bacon all the time. People eat pork. They don't feel bad about it. That pig's right. probably smarter than your cat. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I just so, think that when people start thinking of them as pets, that, 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 that's where it comes in. You know, oh, my God, you, you ate this cat. You, you ate this dog. But fish, fish the same thing. We have exactly. pet fish. It's no yeah. big so, yeah, no, I, I, I'm right there with you. And like I said, that's my line is primate or if it's still alive. If it's still swimming. Yeah, I <laughs> ate um, I, I ate rat in West Africa. I can so see in, um, in the Central African Republic, we ate rat, um, which was fine. I mean, it tasted like yeah. dry pork. I've eaten a lot of bugs. Um, tarantula is delicious. That's tastes like I crab. Hear. Yeah, it's really, really good. Crickets and mealworms are great. They're just crunchy and, you know add a little bit of peppery kind of uh well the mealworms taste kind of like pinions like the um pine nuts mm -hmm. and crickets are just crunchy and nice i've had crickets yeah I've done that. i'm one of those people that i'll go to the fair you know when they have those those, those things here try a lizard do this i'm like okay i'll try it yeah oh absolutely no no issue it, with it Food it drives my family crazy spot, it's all gonna come out the same way so yeah exactly that, that's how that's how i think about it too I, i'd rather try something new that that's yeah. You know that I don't really enjoy that much, but it's something different than just eat the same thing all the time. I just think it's it's just people's minds, like people because there's people that eat bats even, you know, and it's oh, like yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, I don't, I don't see any issue. Um, I think durian is the worst food I've ever had. What is durian? <laughs> durian is a fruit that grows all over Southeast Asia. They're huge. They're they get up. They get over eight pounds. It's covered in spikes. It looks like a Lovecraftian horror. It's all twisted and weird. And, you know, it's this giant eight pound fruit that falls, you know, 160 feet out of trees. They do kill people from falling on them. And um, it just has the, when you, when you open it, it smells like a mix of gasoline and stinky gym socks and rotten old food. It's just overpoweringly bad. And then you taste it, and it's slimy, and it, it's like almost a raw chicken would be the closest texture. Like nothing about it would make you think that this is edible. And people, right. my mother-in-law loves it. People love it. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. It tastes like, like yeah, gasoline and onions and raw garlic mixed with stinky socks. Like it's just the worst thing I ever tasted. <laughs> 
No, I understand that. I used to do a lot of catfishing in the river over here, and I would catch the blues. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Nasty things. My mother, she'd eat them all. Just keep bringing me, but I'm just like, they even smell funny. How can you eat this crap? You know, but uh, I, I can understand that. You know, it's, it's different. People have different tastes and likes. Yeah, that's one of the exciting things. Now, when you were with the natives, this is, you know, sure. we'll keep going this way a little bit here. Sure. When you were with the natives, uh, of course, you, you would have to have a translator. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when they brought you food and stuff, how was that handled? Because you'd have to be delicate because, I mean, they're offering, you know, they're offering you. Oh, I, I, I dive right in. So, okay. yeah, absolutely. So our our translators, um, so when, when you're traveling um, with a crew like this, you have someone that's called a fixer. And yeah. the fixer is the translator, the guide, the um, the kind of cultural attache. Like they, they help you to not get into trouble. Or if you've made a social faux pas, they kind of say, oh, the stupid American doesn't know what he's doing. Please don't arrest him or anything like that. So fixers are heroes. They are amazing, amazing people. And every one of them is just someone that you want to hang out with. So we, um, if they thought that this was something that would really be dangerous, like some kind of food, like so in um, Cameroon, someone brought out a big thing of palm wine for us. And the fixers just said, they told the person before it even got to us, they're like, no, 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 they, they, they can't have this. And they said, you know, this, this kills people. Like this is something that you should not try because we don't know how they made it. Um, and a lot of times it's brewed in cans that used to hold gasoline. Wow. So they were like, yeah, don't, don't drink this. So they, they would stop anything that could be, you know, dangerous. Right. But anything else, especially when they found out that I'm an adventurous eater, they're just like, well, go for it. Here you go. We're going to, we're going to try this. And uh, in, um, when we were having the rat, so they, the, the gentleman brought out this huge plate of rice and then a smaller plate of meat and then a tiny little wooden bowl that was filled with just this angry looking pepper sauce. <laughs> Just red and shiny. And, um, you know, a couple of the guys on the crew really loved hot stuff. So, you know, you, you put some rice on and then you take a couple pieces of meat and then you throw on some hot sauce. And I went to add a couple drops of the hot sauce and the fixer puts his hand on it and goes, white people don't eat this. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to try it. He's like, you should not. I got, I got to try it now. So I put like three dots of it on this entire plate and I was burning just in, in agony from this, but I'm, I'm glad I tried it. And uh, when, when we asked, so they bring out the thing of meat and I said, Oh, that, that looks, that looks very good. Um, could I ask what it is? And the guy looks at me and goes meat. Like it is. Yes. Thank you. Could, could I ask what kind of meat? He goes meat <laughs> walked away. <laughs> And one of our fixers, he goes, it's rat. And I was like, all right, that's cool. <laughs> at that point, it's better that you don't know. Right. Well, at least you have a fixer. I, I have a friend who's listening, I should, who shall remain nameless, who has a sadistic streak. Go to a Mexican restaurant. You know, we're ordering food. And I said, well, is this really, really hot? No, no, no. Go ahead and get it. <laughs> Jalapenos. Oh, my God. I thought I was going to die. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> I so tell to... me. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I used to work with a woman who was from Morocco, and we worked the night shift in a QC micro lab. And we were all ordering takeout one night, and we went to get Thai food. And um, she said, she's like, okay, when you order it, just tell them to make it the spiciest that they possibly can. 
tell them, you know, that don't make it like they would for an American, like make it the spiciest that they can. And I was like, you don't understand. This is really, really traditional and really spicy. She's like, no, it's going to be great. Like that's, that's what I want. So I told them over the phone and the person's kind of joking with me and I went to pick it up. I couldn't even bring it in my car. It was so overpoweringly spicy. I had to roll down all the windows. And this woman takes a bite of it and she goes, I'd call it a medium. Like, you are built differently. I have gone to those restaurants, even here, and I have come out, and one time, I went once, and my taste buds were gone. I mean, it was, it was, they were gone for like two months. Oh, yeah. Until they came back. It was horrible. It, not horrible. It was good food, but I mean, you know. I, don't I never thought hurt. something could kill your taste buds. Right, right. I like spicy to enjoy the flavor. I don't want it to hurt. I don't want to be in pain after I'm eating. <laughs> um, tell me about the worm now. I'm curious about the worm. The Mongolian death worm. Yeah, so the, the greatest name in all of cryptozoology. We had some real weird food in Mongolia, too. Uh, we made our own vodka from mares, mil- from mares and goat's milk. Sweet. So it was vodka that tasted like Parmesan cheese. <laughs> And then you'd soak a toxic root in it that made it taste a little bit like dirt, which made it better, weirdly. But it was, uh, yeah, we had lots of horse meat, lots of uh, uh, hoisin sauce that was expired about six years ago. So we had some real good stuff in Mongolia. So the, the Mongolian death worm is supposedly this um, this creature that lives in the middle of the Gobi Desert in the sands um, underground. And when you hear Mongolian death worm, you think of this giant, you know, 20 foot thing from Dune or the, the tremors worms, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh-huh. and it isn't, it's only supposed to be about two feet long and uh, it's supposed to be bright red, but the, the characteristics of it are what make it really, really cool. It, it can electrocute you. It can shoot hot acid. It can blow itself up, which will kill you in the explosion and shoot blood out of its mouth. Whoa. So wow. toxic, toxic, poisonous blood out of its mouth. So, um, really interesting creature now when you say all of that out loud it sounds crazy sure but there are animals that do every one of those things there are electric eels and electric catfish and and you know a lot of fish that use electricity um there are some land animals that use electricity to uh to you know or to, to locate different things they, they have you know certain electro um there are Poison dart frogs that are poisonous to the touch. There are horned lizards that shoot hot blood out of their eyes. There are blowfish um, and toads that will accidentally blow themselves up on occasion. So all of this is real. (laughs) Um, What I found when I went to Mongolia is, unfortunately, I don't think that there is an animal that does all of these things there. (laughs) But I think it is very likely that there's an undiscovered creature in the Gobi. Um, The largest lizard that lives in the Gobi Desert was just found in the 1970s. So not that long ago. And it's still a region that's, um, you know, that that's very unexplored. Uh, It's, you know, close to China, close to Russia, um, very heavily guarded borders and stuff. So kind of difficult to get to certain parts of it. Um, and there's a lot of mining and a lot of other kind of sensitive um, sensitive things that are going on out in the desert where they don't really want a lot of people out there. So it's not too explored. Um, it is an amazing habitat. It's everything from sands that look like, you know, you're watching Tatooine, all the way to uh, like a, a, a semi-lush um, temperate forest in the Gobi. So lots of different landscapes for animals to hide. And the nomadic herders that we were living with 
um, they're real. The main takeaway that I got was don't mess with nature. So mm -hmm. their whole thing was respect all nature. It's a Buddhist country. Their, their respect is amazing, but it's, it's basically don't mess with nature. And everyone who dies at the hands of the death worm in the stories was somebody who was messing with it. Okay. It never goes out and like kills a kid who's asleep in bed. <laughs> you know, it's it's the guy who goes out and tries to stomp on it or dumps gasoline on it or drives his car over it or you know, and it's all kind of this metaphor for just a respective nature. It's a lesson to learn, yeah. Yeah. Um who pitches these stories to you or or or, or, or you know, these these travels to you? Do you do you find these things yourself to look up or or, or do the producers pitch or how that work? Yeah, mix of both. So um, the reason why, one of the many reasons why I love Icon Films so much is because I get to be a part of all of it. So it's, uh, I collaboratively came up with a list of, you know, the 15, 10 or 15 cryptids that I would be the most interested in looking for. And then we took that list and we kind of pared it down a little bit. And then we went in and met with Nat Geo and said, okay, we're going to do five episodes you know, here, here's our list, which five would you be the most interested in having on the show? And they picked them for a number of different reasons. Uh, the Mongolian deathworm, honestly, I think it was just the name. I think it's like, oh yeah, no, we have to do that. That's great. But then there are other things like, well, you know, if this is going to air in March, excuse me, in March, we already have a bunch of shows about temperate forests. So we really, we'd rather feature, you know, a, a water-based one. So what do you have that's in the water? So a lot of different kind of you know, decisions go into it that I wouldn't have thought of, mm -hmm. but there we are. A, I, I was a part of all of that coming up. And then the other shows that I've done, like Legend Hunter, um, that was one where, you know, the, the production company um, would pick a few of the, they kind of made a list and which ones of these are you the most interested in? And I made a list and then we just combined them. So we did seven episodes of that. And I think four of them, I had chosen and three of them they had chosen but i mean they were ones that i was really interested in anyway and already knew the background of. very very cool i was wondering you you also wrote one about snakes let's hear about yeah snakes. yeah so two hundred thousand snakes um that so since i was a little kid i've always been obsessed with all the uh, especially snakes i really love reptiles and um i right after we finished filming beast hunter i was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer Mm -hmm. And I had a 50% chance of not making it by the end of the year. There was a, there was a very good chance that I, that I wasn't going to make it, but I did. <laughs> very happy, happy to say that I did. And um, it was about a year and a half to two years of recovery after that, where, you know, dozens of surgeries, I had to have my intestines put back in. I, I was opened up from, you know, my sternum down to my groin. I had a, an ostomy bag for a while. I had to go through chemo. So I had to kind of get myself physically put back together. I had to relearn how to walk. I mean, it was just a mess. I, I lost a huge amount of weight and um, all of my confidence, all of my, you know, mental health, everything was just gone. So after all of this, when I started feeling human again, and I started wanting to, you know, get out there again, I thought I, I need to do something that's just as crazy as I used to do to show myself more than anything else to show myself that I can still do this. Right. So I had always wanted to go to this place in Manitoba, Canada that has the largest concentration of snakes on earth. 
there are these dens up there where you get this huge, you know, the, the reports say anywhere from 75,000 to 400,000 snakes. It's right. a lot of snakes. So I just picked a number in the middle and said 200 sounds good, <laughs> but it's a lot of snakes. So every May, these snakes emerge from these pits in the ground and you just get these, I mean, it's like a river or, or a giant lake of just snakes. Like you can reach in up to your shoulder and there's just thousands of them. You can lift them up and they run down your arm. They cover you. You know, you do. And I said, I want to go up and I want to lay down in the pit of snakes and I want, I want to film this. Wow. So I, I convinced two of my friends to do it with me. I contacted um, the, the government agency that, that runs this, uh, that, that, you know, runs this area. It's a national park. And I got their permission to do it. And I got two buddies. We drove 34 hours straight. We left Boston at about midnight, drove up there, um, spent a day and a half playing with the snakes, got back in the car and drove back home. Wow. Wow. And, and obviously they, they weren't venomous, were they? So it's um, it's mostly red-sided garter snakes, okay. but they're um, because of the concentration of them. There's usually a, a few other species that are kind of mixed in. We didn't see anything, um, but it's very likely that there were a couple venomous snakes in there. Uh -huh. But in May, they're so cold, they're not looking to bite you. There, I mean, there was there was next to no danger. We didn't get bitten once, and I, I so, handled thousands. So why do they come out? It's so cool. it's um it's a confluence of factors. It's about the furthest north of their of their range. So this snake, um, you don't really find them much further north than this. So it's about the coldest that they can survive. And um, all garter snakes, not all, most garter snakes that live in colder climates, they den together in the winter. So even my backyard, I have a snake den in my backyard, uh -huh. but um in Massachusetts, but. I'm, they're only going to get, you know, six or seven in this den and they're going to den together. So mm -hmm. by denning together in the winter, they um, they get a little bit of protection from the cold because they generate a small amount of body heat themselves just from being alive um, and from filling a space more because your, your fridge retains the temperature better if it's full than if it's empty. So mm -hmm. same kind of concept there. And up here, they have the added benefit of, you know, so, so because it's colder, there's going to be a bigger concentration of snakes to get that benefit from the, the little bit of body heat. And uh, this area has limestone caves underground, and the entrances to those limestone caves are big enough for a snake to get in, but not big enough for a predator to. Okay. Um, it's also in the spring, there's swamp land all around it, which is the, the area for them to eat. Like they're going to find frogs, they're going to find all kinds of things that they want to eat in this kind of swampy area. And the first thing, the first two things they want to do when they emerge in, in, in May is to mate and to eat. And this provides them both of those things because if you're denning together with hundreds of thousands of individuals, you're going to find a mate much easier as well. So because That's... of all of this stuff, it just happens that this one area is the perfect spot and it's the largest concentration on earth. That's what I was thinking because down in Southern California and up here in the uh, foothills, um, you know, the, there's a time of year when the tarantulas come out full yeah. moon, and they do what they do all the dance. And I remember my brother was uh, horseback riding and they were jumping up as, as high as the horse for their mating dance. Yeah, they're amazing. I've been out there twice to, yeah. um, to see that during the, the tarantula migration and the, and the mating. It's, it's incredible. It's such a wild thing to see. And people don't think of that in the United States, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's pretty accessible too. It's not too hard to get to those regions to find no, them. No, it's not. It's not hard at all to get those regions. I'm just fascinated by what you do, and you have so much fun doing it. I do. You're still into it. 
I do. I love it. It's um, my, my daughter always asks me, you know, what's, what's your favorite thing to do? Um, and, you know, of course, it's hanging out with them. It's hanging out with my kids. That's my favorite thing to do. And she's like, besides that, besides that. And I say, it's going on adventures. It's doing this stuff. It's just learning something that I didn't know, experiencing something that I'd never seen or, you know, eating something that I didn't know existed. Like, I love it. It's just, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know why you wouldn't. <laughs> And I give credit to your wife to have an open mind to let you do this stuff. I mean, so someone would be like, you're, you're going to go do what? <laughs> you know, so she, the only thing I've ever done that she was hesitant about, um, she didn't ask me not to do it, but she was hesitant about it, was the, the bullet ant ceremony in Brazil. So I, I did a, a ritual where I was stung um, hundreds of times by bullet ants, and that can potentially be fatal. So she was a little nervous about that. And, um, oh, I got bitten by a neotropical rattlesnake once, and she did ask me to promise that I'd never free handle venomous again, so I haven't. <laughs> but that, that was smart. That was a smart move. I, should, I shouldn't have had to make that promise, I'll say. <laughs> Tell me about that. Now, now you've opened up that, that window. How did you manage to get bit, bit by the rattlesnake? I was free handling it. I was just being stupid. I was oh, wow. young and dumb and uh, I, I was holding it without using any tools. And that's just, there are people out there who can do it and who are, you know, they, they say that they are safe and they say that this is better for them than using a hook. Personally, I will never do it again. And uh, I feel like I was just being young and dumb. <laughs> I remember going out with the rattlesnake catcher and um, I was with a photographer because I used to be a newspaper reporter and we're standing on this guy's driveway and he pulls this thing out and he's like come closer I, i've got a super zoom lens and i'm like i'm good <laughs> yep, i can get closer like this i'm good i'm good you know i'm gonna be 50 feet away from that thing i don't care i'm good yeah well and that's the best thing you can do i mean that's yeah. there's absolutely nothing wrong with that that like that that snake wants nothing to do with you so the only way you're going to get bit is if you go and mess with it like i yeah. did <laughs> every time i've ever been bitten it's been my fault now the bullet ants. When people think about ants like that, they think about Indiana Jones. Yep. And the ants that he he uh, he you know ended up running into. Tell, and the pit of snakes as well. <laughs> yeah. Tell me the difference between the ants he ran into and what the bullet ants. So bullet ants have the worst sting in the world. Okay. They um they're uh, about almost two inches long. They're one of the biggest ants in the world, and they have the worst sting. So there's, a, there's something called the Schmidt Pain Index that ranks how painful, and this is from an, a very famous entomologist who unfortunately just passed away last week. His name was Justin Schmidt, an amazing man. I, I had the opportunity to speak with him a number of times, and uh, he ranked just yeah, exactly what it sounds like, the pain of every sting of every insect that you can think of, and bullet ants are at the absolute top. Um, they also call them the 24-hour ant because the pain lasts for 24 hours. Wow. So the bullet ant is because they're about the size of a bullet, and if you've been stung, it feels like you've been shot. So people wow. do die from one sting, um, both from anaphylaxis, you know, like, like a bee sting, someone being allergic, and also just from shock. So if you're walking around in a forest and one falls from the tree, because they live in the trees, if one falls on you and stings you in the face, people have died just from the, the pain of that. So there was, we had to do a lot of research. I had, it was my idea to do the ritual and I had to convince the production company that, that we could do this and do it, you know, reasonably safely. I had to sign off, sign my life away. And, um, and then I actually got to go in there and, uh, and perform this ritual with, uh, with this tribe, um, the Satare Mawe tribe in Brazil. 
and it's known as the most extreme initiation ceremony in the world. So what? What is the ritual? What what happens? Do they dump mm -hmm. ants on you, or how does that work? <laughs> so you uh, you go out in the forest and you collect all the ants first. Okay. So you find you find a nest. And you kind of make the ants a little bit angry, collect them on bamboo stalks, and then uh, yeah, collect them in, in essentially a, a large bamboo tube. And uh, once you get them, you bring them back to the village. You get a couple hundred of them, and you bring them back to the village. And then they, they knock the ants out in a narcotic solution. So they mix a couple plants together. It makes like this narcotic. The ants go unconscious. While the ants are unconscious, they weave them into gloves, stinger facing inward. So they get these raffia gloves with hundreds of ants woven into them with the stingers facing inward, and then they wait until they wake up. And once the ants wake up, then they take those gloves and they put them on the hands of the initiate. And you have to wear the gloves on your hands and then um, do a dance for five minutes while the ants are just stinging you over and over and over again wow. in your hands. And I mean, your hands are sensitive. Like that's... So um, I had to get a tester sting to show that I wasn't allergic. And after the, I've been bitten and stung by everything you can think of. And I got one sting from these ants. And I said, I don't think I can do this. This was a bad idea. This, these, this is the worst pain that I could ever imagine. I was, I was starting to hallucinate just from the pain, from one sting. So I said to the producer, who's a, a buddy of mine, I was like, Ben, I'm really sorry, man. I, I don't think, he's like, no, I'm glad. I was really nervous about it. I'm glad that you're not doing it. That's fine. And then I looked at the tribe who were so kind and so nice to, to, to me and to us, and they were going to teach us this stuff. And it, I saw like a look of disappointment. Like, I got to do it. I got to do it. So, so I stepped up and I did. And as soon as they put the gloves on me, the first thing that I got was under the nail of my left ring finger. Oh, yeah. That's going to feel good. And I went, oh, no, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and then I just got hundreds of stings all over my hands. And I lost my mind. For 24 hours, I lost my mind. I, I, I headbutted our producer. I tackled our sound guy. I just started running uncontrollably. We had a, an ER doctor, um, a, an emergency doctor, who was with us on the crew uh, for this. And he was nervous that, you know, I was going to go into, my heart was going to stop because I, I was running constantly and I had the venom running through me. And the, there were other members of the tribe who did this, did this with me, um, did the ceremony. And they similarly lost their minds. Um, one of them burned down someone's hut that night. Another one of the guys snuck onto our boat with a machete and wanted to kill us because he said that we were witches who made the ceremony so much worse. And the, the head of the tribe basically grabbed this guy, grabbed the machete out of his hand and just went, sorry, sometimes this happens. <laughs> so there's nothing they can give you to, to help kill the pain? Uh, so the first, the, the pain builds for about four hours and then it stays there, builds for about four or five hours and then it stays there for the next like 18, 19, 20 hours. Wow. So it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And, you know, the first hour, you're just in, in unimaginable pain, sweat pouring off of me, and then it just keeps getting worse. So once you hit that kind of four-hour mark, then they say, you've experienced the worst of it. The best thing you could do, the only thing that's going to stop this is if you put your hands in ice. So they did let us put our hands in ice, but because that can pose its own problems. You can't soak your hands in ice for 24 hours. You put your hands in ice for about a minute, then you take them out. And as soon as they left the ice, the pain would just come right back. Hmm. So it did that for a few hours, but otherwise you just kind of grin and bear it, just deal with it. 
I could see why they made you sign all the releases. Oh, it was oh, awful. Yeah, it was. It was really. I mean, so it's 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 an absolute the 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 worst pain that you can possibly go through, and and that's what they that's what they want. That's the whole reason for the ceremony is that the reason why people in this tribe do the ceremony, um, men or women, um, if you want to be a hunter, and a hunter is the highest position in the tribe. So this this ceremony um, shows you what you can put your body through, because mm -hmm. if you've never done this ritual and you're out on a wild boar hunt and you get gored, you're going to go, oh, this hurts so bad. I'm just going to lay down and die. But if you've done the bullet dance, you go, eh, I'm going to walk back to the village. <laughs> this isn't that bad. And it really does teach you that. Um, I was in the hospital, like I said, with uh, with colon cancer a few months later. I actually um, I had a complication where my intestines ruptured. And I went septic. So my intestines ruptured and spilled everything inside of me. The doctors had to put me in a medically induced coma and cut me open and, you know, wash everything out. And as you can imagine, that's pretty painful. Uh -huh. So for the next month, they would come in and ask you, um, you know, every four hours, they'd ask you to rate what your pain is on a one to 10 scale. And once I was feeling a little bit more human, the doctor said, Pat, you're our only patient that we've ever had. They kind of got my sense of humor. They're like, you're the only patient we've ever had who had this experience, and you never once gave yourself a 10. Like, you only gave yourself an 8. They said, you could barely talk. You were in so much pain. You were on a ton of morphine, and you ranked yourself an 8 once. And I said, that's because I felt a 10. <laughs> the bullet ants are a 10, and that's the only 10 I hope I ever experience in my life. Wow. Well, congratulations for beating cancer, though. Thank you. Thank you very much. It does You're feel good. <laughs> uh, pe pe yeah, not not tough. I don't know if that's the word, but, but thank you very much. <laughs> um, what do you say to people that want to do what you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's do it. <laughs> that's the short answer is do it. Absolutely. I, I would encourage everyone, everything I've done except the bullet ant ceremony, don't do that. <laughs> but but um, like you said, it's really expensive to do it on your own. So that's kind of the hard thing is I, I get people who ask, well, how, how can I do this? Meaning how can I do TV? That's a much harder answer. So I, um, a lot of it's luck. And a lot of it's just raw determination. So for six years, I was filming my own wildlife show and putting it up on YouTube. I mean, I had to, I had to learn how to film. I had to learn how to edit. I had to learn how to do, like, just taught myself all this stuff. I volunteered at a, uh, a cable access network to learn some of it. And I was working 70 or 80 hours in a, in a microbiology lab and then doing another 40 or 50 hours of this filming stuff on my own and maxing out every credit card I can get and using every spare moment. I mean, literally every spare moment. My, my wife was, you know, involved in it with me. So it was me and her and a few of our best friends. Mm -hmm. And every moment that we had was either contacting networks, contacting music to use in the show, contact like researching or going different places. I was having meetings in New York and in LA and in DC that I was paying for to go and have these meetings and then flying us all over the world to film a nature show and editing it and putting it up. And I did that for six years with, without making any money, with spending money. And I loved it, but most people would think that I was crazy and they'd be right. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I went the same route when I first started my, my paranormal team 
it was really to film another team because I was I, I was already filming like an adventure TV show in public access. Yeah. So it was really to film another paranormal team, but then I got hooked and started filming my own stuff. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of expense to it. And I mean, we were showing our stuff on public access for the longest time, you know, and uh, it is what it is. Just like now, if, if I want to do a documentary, I'm going to do it myself. But it's Absolutely. So much work to pour into it. People don't realize it. No, no. And that, that, that was my books as well. So I wrote them without any advance, without anything like that. I just, I, I wrote them because I wanted to. And then I shopped them around for a few years. And it, um, my, my COVID project was editing, was, you know, making, like finishing the books and getting them all editing and doing all that. I still haven't seen a dime <laughs> for them. I mean, they were just released this month. But right. yeah, it's, it's just when you're passionate about it, you know, it's not, um, you don't mind kind of putting in the hours. What's been your most favorite adventure? Oh, having kids. hundred percent. I mean, they are, uh, every day is something new and, and getting to experience this stuff like through them is, it sounds so trite and so kind of overstated, but it's absolutely true. I mean, I say I used to be, a, 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 I used to know a little bit about just about everything out there. And over the last three years, I've become a complete expert on everything in my yard. So I could tell you every species that lives in our yard. I could tell you all of their habitats. So that for sure. Um, as far as traveling goes, I think um, the, my favorite thing I ever did was going a thousand feet underwater in a three-man sub off the coast of British Columbia. Oh, how cool. I was wild. As a marine biologist, I totally geeked out on it. Um, the, when we did this at the time, so this was back in 2010, 2009 or 2010 that I did this. And the, the guy who ran the submarine, he said that he's a year one of maybe 200 people that have ever done this. Wow. That was pretty cool. Was it dark when you got down that far? Pitch black. Black like you've never experienced before. Like, I mean, I, I think I say in the book, it's, it's, it's almost as if light didn't exist. Like you can't remember what light looked like. It's just this inky blackness that's, I mean, it's super peaceful, but I can see where other people would kind of lose their mind a little bit. We, we had tons of lights on the subs and everything, but we, we went just, you know, turn everything off and just experience it for a minute and then turn the lights on and see what we can find. And uh, we were down there for hours. It was, it was surreal. Fantastic. So what's next for you? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty psyched that the books just came out. I have a few more ideas for new books. Um, I, I might try some fiction because uh, I, I haven't done that before. I've got one idea for a kid's book and one idea for an adult book that I'm working on. So I'm kind of kicking those around. Um, and as far as adventures go, um, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, I've, uh, I haven't traveled very much since Legend Hunter with, with the pandemic and with everything else. And it's much harder to travel with two kids when, when they were really little. Um, I brought my daughter uh, overseas and brought her to a few places. And I can't wait until they're old enough to go on some of these more extreme adventures. But mm -hmm. I'm crazy. I'm not, I don't want to pull them into my crazy <laughs> just yet. So, yeah, I mean, right now, focused on the books and focused on uh, on uh, figuring out where where the next adventure might be. So you could be the Rick Steves of weird travel. It's true. Take your kids it's with true. you, right? Yeah, I mean, Steve Irwin, he brought his kids on, uh, on every shoot that he went on. And, yeah, I mean, it, it works. Kids like that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, my kids love it. For sure. Better, right? 
We did. Um, so I did film a pilot of a kids' nature show with me and my daughter co-hosting. Oh, that's cool. That was awesome. Very cool. It was so much fun. I loved it. Well, you can, like you say, you could always do it independently and tell yeah. somebody to it up, right? Yeah, it's true. That sounds like a really cool idea. We had a you're really standing, good time. You're with standing it. on the strip in Las Vegas. Yeah. And all these other dudes like Jeff Corwin. Sure. <laughs> They're all little areas to stand, right? I'm just glad I'm going to say this out there right now. I like to watch Jeff Corwin, but when he gets in the trees and he's going after the black mamba and then they're hanging from the trees, I'm like, dude, you know. He, he lives in Massachusetts also. I've met him a Does couple he? times. He's a very fun guy. Yeah, very, very. Uh, we, we worked with a lot of the same people. Yeah, no, he's, he's a super interesting and very fun guy. I just think it's hilarious because he goes after those black mamas and I'm like, I can't watch this. This is just too much for me. Yeah, it's pretty intense. He really but, knows what he's doing, though. He really, really does. Yes, he he's, does. Um, yeah, exactly yeah, he went to, does. went to school for it. He's got a ton of experience. He freaks out with the primates. He's not such a fan of the primates. And I got to say, I, I understand that. They are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so you're standing on the strip in Las Vegas. You got Jeff Corwin there and a few of the other guys. How do you entice people to, to read your books? Um, I mean, I tell them you're, you're going to get something that you won't get anywhere else. You're going to get these these one-off stories that hopefully make you feel like you're right there with me in the crew. And, uh, you know, it's it's regions of the world that people probably haven't been to. And it's experiences that most people wouldn't be able to have, even if they went there. Because, you know, going there on a film crew, it, it opens a lot of doors that would otherwise be shut to you. So uh, you'll get a little glimpse into what it's like to go on some of this really, really bizarre experiences. And, and hopefully I get to tell it like the fish out of water that I was and just being open to all of these experiences without judgment and uh, letting myself be the butt of every joke, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Pat, thank you so much. You are my idol and I I have all your books. I just read oh, the ones you. in the process of reading the books, but I will follow you on TV wherever you go. <laughs> Thank Wherever you so much. I really appreciate it. I will it. watch. I will, I will continue watching. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate maybe it. This is great. Can, yeah, maybe one day we can have you on again and talk to you some more about your stuff. But uh, I would love you. that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night. Yep. You have a great rest of your evening. Bye. Okay, guys. That I've, I've watched him for a long time on TV, and this, this was the greatest thing tonight. Great, 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 great thing. Tomorrow night, I'm not going to be live. Um, we remember I was told I was telling you guys after my vacation that I had to do a lot of catch up with uh, episodes to get everything back in flow. Well, I've got everything back in flow now, but you know th that there would be these pre-recorded shows in between, and this is what's happening tomorrow night and the night after. However, I will be on the chat tomorrow, and tomorrow is going to be an awesome show because we have have um, Riz Mirza with us. And Riz Mirza is a trans channeler. And he is like the coolest person I've ever met in my life. And uh, we had a great conversation. And he even did a, did a reading on me at the very end of the show that I didn't see coming. So it's kind of an interesting reading he did as well. So that's going to be at 6.30 tomorrow over on YouTube. I already have it uh, over at Meetup and everywhere. And I'll go ahead and tease it for you guys and everything for tomorrow night. But I encourage you to watch Riz Mercy tomorrow night because it's going to be that's a really good show. Wednesday, I have another great show lined up for you. It is the Hammonds. They're from Australia, and they are lifelong UFO contactees. 
and they have a great story to tell in that they met when they were children during one of their contacts with the aliens on ship, on board, a shipboard. And they've got a fascinating story to tell. And then, and, 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 and about te the, the technology of stuff, you know, because that um, they were allowed to play with the technology aboard the craft and everything. So they've got a really great story to tell about being little kids and being aboard the ship and what happens when, 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 when they abduct little kids. Okay. But uh, they're still to this day, they're still being abducted. So I, I encourage you to see that show too. And that'll be at 6 30 PM on Wednesday Pacific, of course. So like I said, I will not be live. However, I will be in the chat rooms tomorrow and Wednesday for those two shows to talk with you guys. And on Wednesday, the, 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 the couple will be in the chat room. So they'll, they'll be able to answer questions that you might have. So come over and check, check everything out the next two days. But those are pre-recorded shows. They were recorded last week. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're not that like moldy oldy kind of show, you know, that, that I record like back a month and a half ago and, and throw it out there. No, 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 no. And then on Thursday, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time because obviously there won't be a teaser because I didn't know at the time that I recorded them what the next show shows were going to be going down the line. Thursday, my guest is Leslie Rule. Who is Leslie Rule? Leslie Rule is Anne Rule's daughter. Anne Rule is famous for writing true crime novels, and she knew Ted Bundy. And I've, I was a big fan of Anne Rule for years. And then I found out Leslie Rule was writing. Leslie Rule also writes true crime, but she grew up in a haunted house. And so that's when her fascination with the paranormal started. So she's got uh, several books out about hauntings in America, and she's going to be on Thursday to talk to us about that at 6.30 p.m. That's a live show. Okay, I'll be back live Thursday. So that's the week laid out for you guys. So that's cool. You know, I forgot to do that guy's website, but I will go ahead and do it at the end of the show like I always do. So you guys can get his website. I forgot all about it. It's me. But, uh, yeah, I encourage you tomorrow to watch Mr. Mirza. He's really, really good at what he does. Very, very nice guy. In fact, he started out as a rock musician. <laughs> and uh, just a lot of energy, a lot of energy. So I encourage you to watch tomorrow's show, 6.30 p.m. That'll be over at the YouTube channel premiere. And then Wednesday, again, we have the the, uh, the, the Hammond couple, lifelong uh, contactees with UFOs. And they have some interesting stories to tell. They also have books that they've written that are free on their website. So you guys, you know, will be able to have access to that as well. And then Thursday, again, um, Leslie Rule, that will be a live show. Okay, that being said, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you saw tonight and you haven't done so already, please hit that share button. And uh, please hit the like button. Show me some love if you haven't done that already either. If you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to hit that hit slap to click on that little ghost in the bottom right hand corner and the subscribe button will pop up and if you haven't subscribed already uh please do and uh hit that like button and all that stuff that goes for everybody though to hit that like button and you know show me some love um if you if you're over here from my tiktok channel um uh, thank you for coming and please subscribe and uh okay i think i got that covered right and you can find me here on facebook you can find me on Ghost on, on Instagram under Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. You can find us over at, at, at TikTok under California Haunts, which is all lowercase. You can find us over at, 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 at The Bird, Twitter. You can find us over there at Cal Haunts. And you can also find us at Twitch. So we're everywhere, everywhere you look. 
So thank you guys for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And uh, before I sign off here, I'm going to show you his contact information and uh, and the books that he has out, the books that I'm in the process of reading. I really had a lot of fun tonight. I hope you did too, hearing these stories about these crazy creatures, right? The crazy creatures. I'll never forget this interview. But uh, thank you guys all so much. And you see that ticker down at the bottom? I usually don't, I haven't been doing that in a while, but thank you guys for the donations, Jerry and George, who have sent, or, sent donations in. Um, every donation that you give towards the radio show helps me get uh, guests on the air and keeps the equipment running because all the equipment comes out of my pocket. So when something dies, I have to replace it, like my laptop and headphones and whatever. Everything goes back into the production. So if you can find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, that would be great. That's paypal.me at California Haunts. Or I do have a Venmo, and that's Venmo at California Haunts. All right, here we go. I'm going to show you his contact information, and then I'm going to leave I'm going to leave you guys alone for the night to enjoy your evening. So here we go. So his website is patspain.com. Spain is in the country.com. Pat Spain. And the book is The Mongolian Death Worm and a Little Bigfoot. You got a uh, a butterproof uh, ground sloth, 200,000 snakes, sea serpents, and a living dinosaur. And of course, you can get those at Amazon. And always remember when you get into like like people that have Discovery Plus and all that, you can go back through and find his shows, find his old shows on that network. You know, over at Nat Geo. In fact, I want to look on Nat Geo because I have Nat Geo right now by Disney Plus, so I can check out the rest of his old shows. But but look for but look for his old shows. You know, good entertainment. Okay, guys, I'll see. You. I, I will see you in the chat room tomorrow, 6:30 p.m. Pacific, for for um, excuse me, <laughs> for Riz Mirza. Okay, I will see you tomorrow. Have a great evening.